So we're in 1 John chapter 2, and after I labored over this all week, I, I said, this sermon is a mess, so I might come back to it next week, just because I'm trying to cover too much at one time, but um, I don't know, I haven't decided, but that's where my head is. It's in a bad place, huh? Get it together, I'm trying, I'm trying. I'll do it for you. <laughs> so, um, so we're in 1 John chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 15 through 17 today. And uh, a number of years ago, Harold Lindzell, who was a great defender of the Bible, um, he was one of the leading people with the, uh, when the whole evangelical world was starting to deny the full authority of the Bible, he was one of the guys that really stood strong. But he said something interesting about the church and the world and boats. So I want to share that with you. He said, it's right for the church to be in the world. It is wrong for the world to be in the church. A boat in the water is good. That is what boats are for. However, water inside the boat causes it to sink. Now, that's a really profound, profound thought. But he's exactly right, of course. Um, the, the church is meant to be in the world to represent Christ to the world. But when the world is in the church, the church is in a world of hurt. And we live in a time when the, the world is so in the church uh, in America, it's, it's kind of shocking. But um, I think every Christian knows that often quoted line, um, Christians should be in the world but not of the world, right? See, y'all knew it. And you know where that comes from? That comes from the Last Supper and um, this great prayer that Jesus gave to the Lord for the disciples uh, in John chapter 17. And his, the actual words, I want to read that for you. John 17, 14. Remember, this is a prayer. He's praying to the Father. He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's just a great passage. In a couple of years, we'll probably look at that together when we study John's gospel. But um, for now, we see that Jesus himself says that his followers will be hated by the world for the reason that they're not of the world. That means it's really important for us not to be of the world as Christians because everything that represents God in the world is destroyed. We ruin um, what God is doing if we're going to be worldly Christians. So what exactly does not of the world mean? So he's not saying the disciples are from Mars or um, Tatooine or anything like that out of this world, you know, like, no, that doesn't mean that. He's talking about spiritual kingdoms on this planet that are um, at odds with each other. So allegiances is what he's talking about. The actual contrast Jesus is making is concerns the world of people who follow him and possess his word and those who belong to the evil one. In fact, at the end of 1 John, we're going to see where John says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So what does that mean? Is that, what, what's that really referring to? So this world is the world that serves the evil one. Whether, whether people know it or not, that's what, that's what they're doing. There are those who are in the world, however, who are not of the world, and those are the people that are following Christ. But those people, and I hope that's all of us, 
They live surrounded by a system and a culture that serves the evil one. So it's our task to represent Christ and part of that task, a key component of that is not to be part of that evil world around us, to not partake of the evil of the world. We live in it, but we're separated from it. And so the people that follow Christ are to be holy, and holy means separate, set apart. Now you want to be careful when you see the word world in the New Testament, because just like the word world in our language, it's got a, a variety of meanings um, to it. When the Greeks used the word world, cosmos, and so that's where we get the word cosmos, right? Like that famous uh, documentary they had many years ago saying that God didn't exist. But um, they generally, when people use cosmos, the Greeks meant basically the universe. They would, what we would call creation, they, they would call the cosmos. And, it, it, and cosm the word cosmos has the idea of an orderly system. Because if you look at the world, it does have balance and nature, and then there's the natural rhythms of nature with regard to the stars and the tides and um, all of those kinds of things, you know. The, the order, the seasons, the, the orderly world we inhabit. In fact, you ladies, have made, some of you have put on some cosmetics today, which comes right from that very word. Uh, and that means you're trying to arrange your face to look a little more orderly and uh, <laughs> that's what cosmetics are for, right? To bring order and balance to your, to your appearance. In most civilizations through the last few thousand years, cosmetics were used for that, to bring order. Now, we all know some people who use cosmetics to create disorder in their face, their, their appearance, which I think reveals an actual grasp of what the world is like right now. I mean, I think uh, civilizations in decline often, without understanding what they're doing, people find ways to express disorder and sort of anti-beauty. And you actually see that in the way some people um, portray themselves, they present themselves that way. I, I think it's an unconscious recognition that the world is falling apart. And they don't really understand it, but that's how they're expressing themselves. But for the Greeks, cosmos expressed order in the natural world. And that's the way Paul used it, for example, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, when he says, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So God made the world. That's the physical world, the, the world we inhabit. But very often, the New Testament uses the word cosmos for the fallen world system, the way the world functions among human beings. So John and Paul use it of the world system that man builds to replace God, to stand in the place of God. It's, a, it's, a, it's what men do to express their rebellion against God. So they create systems and behavioral patterns and all of that. So it can be a religious pattern or it could be a secular pattern. It can be a really old ancient thing or it can be a really radically new thing. But it's all got the same purpose which is to we're going to build the world for ourselves and we're going to decide what it's going to be like, not God. That's, that's the common thing in all of these world systems. So that's the underlying reality there. It's our world. We're going to make it in a way that suits us. Now, of course, human beings build different worlds and fight each other over their different worlds they're trying to create. But all of it has one ultimate person behind it and that's Satan, the evil one. And he wants 
anything. He'll do anything. He'll offer you anything. He'll set up anything you want as long as you're, it's not God that you're following. So people come up with all kinds of alternative plans there. So all cultures and civilizations express human rebellion against God. That is true in all times. It's true in every nation all around our planet. Some systems devised by men are directly demonically influenced. And, and sometimes it's just kooky people coming up with their own stuff. But there's a lot of darkness. And have you noticed there's darkness in the world? <laughs> you can even have cultures that are officially dedicated to Christianity and be very, very worldly. I could give you a very full lecture on Christendom in medieval Europe and up through the more modern era where nations forced everybody to be Christian, basically. And they were not godly nations. It was merely external. So Satan can even twist Christianity to be worldly, right? Godliness was as rare in Christendom as it is in our super secular perverted world. It was just as rare because you can't impose Christianity on people and they're going to behave properly. They might externally behave in certain ways, but the, all the dark twisted things that go on behind the scenes underground and all that, that was all very much a part of all of that. You can't pass a law and make people godly within by doing that. You can't do it. You can't intimidate people into being born again. That's a work of God, not intimidation by people. We don't have any power to impart new life to people, nor does a government. Only God can do that. So you can pass a law and make people come to church, but that doesn't change their heart. It just corrupts the church. So Christianity as the official religion of a nation is always a disastrous situation, always. Because the state supports the church, but the state has very different interests than the church does. So it, the church gets corrupted through that. A massive church hierarchy is created. It makes its presence known everywhere. And yet it's only in the most superficial way about everybody following Jesus. Even the people within the church that are appointed by the state have no spiritual interest. It all becomes political. It's a religious system though. It's very rich. It becomes very powerful. They preach a morality that they hardly ever live. So that's kind of the history of Western civilization in a lot of ways. That's not to say there weren't good things that grew out of that because just having a standard sort of presented to everybody kind of lifts everything a little bit. But in terms of morality and goodness and all of that, the morals of the world are very different from the Bibles, even if you slap a Christian label on it. Because the Bible's morals don't change, but the world's constantly changes. It's always a new thing. So what's going to be our guide? If I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, what's my guide? Who's going to be my teacher? Who's going to shape my heart and my mind? Who's going to draw me to it? Is it going to be the word of God or is it going to be the world? Because you're going to have to choose. And for some of you, it's a battle between both. Well, actually, for all of us, in some ways, it's a battle between both. But some of you are really struggling which way you're going to go. And you are attracted to the word, but the world has just as much grip or power in your life. And it shouldn't. So 1 John 2.15, that's where we are today. This is how it begins. It's not subtle. <laughs> Do not love the world. 
Do not love the world nor the things in the world. But I love my tree. It's one of the best trees I've ever had. It brings, no, it's not talking about trees. <laughs> see, see, that's where you got to use the word world really carefully. It's not talking about nature. It's talking about the evil systems of humanity and cultures in the world. That's the way John is using it here. Do not love the world does not mean do not enjoy the beach or the sweet, well, actually some things about the beach maybe, but not the beach itself. The beach is fine. But um, do not enjoy, it's not saying don't enjoy the innocent pleasures of the world. A stroll through the woods, a walk along the, the shore. It's not saying that. Do not love the world. I'm not supposed to love the world. I'm enjoying this forest too much. No, that's, that's not it. It's talking about worldliness. It's talking about spiritual things. So what it means is never putting, it does, when it refers to innocent pleasures, and there are many innocent pleasures in the world. So the only, the only way this would apply to that is if you're putting those things above God, which people do too, right? Those innocent pleasures become the dominant thing in your life. That's wrong. Anything you put above God is wrong. So you have to hold on to innocent pleasures loosely because they might slip away. And if you've invested too much in them, you're going to crash, and, and, but you've been investing in the wrong thing. Enjoy them while you have them, but don't put them over God. I'm going to spend all my time doing my pleasures, even if they're innocent pleasures, instead of serving the Lord. Or, and don't, um, yes, I see that. <laughs> you have to hold them loosely because they might be taken away from you. You know, what if, it, it, you can just imagine an Ukrainian living in a little happy village three years ago, enjoying the innocent pleasures of life. And now there's, there's, their whole town is completely destroyed, right? Everything is lost, their family's been killed. But that can happen. That can even happen to godly people. There's godly people there it's happening to. All that can be stripped away. That's not where our heart needs to be. You and I have no guarantees of a, a peaceful and happy life in a cursed world that is full of sinners. We don't have a guarantee of that. We do have a promise. Um, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, do not worry what you will, what we, what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear for clothing. The Gentiles eagerly seek for these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But, now here's the famous part, you should all know it, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Now all the things are just food and drink and clothing. That's it. He doesn't talk to you about luxury vehicles or anything like that. But he comes first and righteousness comes first. And when he does come first, he promises he'll look out for your needs. Now again, that doesn't mean you can't die in a war or die in a flood. That could happen. But you'd go right to heaven. But he doesn't promise riches. He just promises he's going to take care of you. So as far as the innocent joys of the world go, it's just a matter of priorities. Give God his due and his proper place. He comes first. Always. Never let God's good gifts replace him in your heart. You don't want to worship his, get the things he gave you or the joys of this world. You want to worship him. And those things have their right place then. So John isn't, he isn't talking about innocent pleasures here though, primarily. He's talking about the world's love of sin. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about 
lost humanity and their rejection of God and the world they create out of that rejection. That's what he's talking about, worldliness. It happens in subtle ways. It happens in big ways. It can happen in the quiet choices that we make and it can happen in the really big choices that we make. A, culture's, a culture that rejects absolute fundamental things that God has made, they're trying to pull us into that. Who, who would have thought in the last 6,000 years that a major civilization would say there aren't two genders? <laughs> who, who would have even thought that, you know? Especially one that claims to believe in science which says there are two genders. We're supposed to be science worshipers in America, but science goes out the window immediately when it interferes with our gods. And our god is self-expression. That's the god of American culture. Whatever you feel is right. And whatever you feel, because we're on that path, whatever people feel gets weirder and weirder and weirder. They just had a uh, lady testify before Congress the other day of she's a she runs an abortion clinic and um, and she was testifying how important that is that she'd be allowed to kill babies and stuff like that but somebody kind of researched her life this woman is a witch she's actually a witch I mean now most abortion providers aren't witches but she actually is one and she's also a furry she runs around in the woods with a furry tail on <laughs> I mean bringing those things together and then, and then she's sitting before Congress wearing a kind of a lady's business suit, you know, and being very doctor-like and all this stuff. But she runs around the woods as a pagan and, a, and an animal. Self-expression. That's what I am. I only kill babies for a job, but really, I'm a, I'm a wood, ch wood chipmunk or something. Or a, <laughs> I live in the woods. So the world is going to get increasingly bizarre, which should help us. But actually, it kind of drags everybody further down that path of whatever you feel is right, whatever you want to be is right. Whatever weird inclination enters your head, that's really you. Jesus said something about yourself. Do you remember what he said? He said, deny yourself. <laughs> that's because human beings have this corrupt nature. So you've got to deny those things. You can't follow those paths. That, that's where it takes you, in very strange places. Maybe not that strange. But there's a grown woman doing that, who's a doctor, running around the woods with a furry tail. You can't, make, you can't be a Christian and make the world's rejection of God the pattern for your life. You can't just be in the culture. Every culture, whether it's a super rigorous fundamentalist Islamic culture or a crazy Western American culture, they both have their ways of keeping you away from God. You can't be immersed in that culture. You have to, you have to weigh the culture by the word of God. You have to measure the culture by the word of God. You can't love the world that is away from him. The second part of verse 15, very black and white statement, if anyone loves the world, talking about this world system, okay? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Did you catch that? 
They're opposed to each other. You can't love both. And if you love the world system, if you love the wickedness of the world, you don't love God. You can't. A person who's been born again, who possesses the Holy Spirit, who has the moral law of God written on their heart, that person can't really love sin and the worldly ways of the world, the sinful ways of the world. They, they can't delight in sin. Now they might be tempted, they might, have, they might have great battles with their own flesh, they might lapse into well ingrained habits of behavior that they've cultivated over a long period of time and it's hard to shake those things. That's all true. But if they belong to God, they agree with God that sin is evil and they despise it. They're going to say no. You cannot love the world and love the Father. Very clear. Jesus' brother James says something very similar in James chapter 4 verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James 4.4. 4. You can't serve both. It's one or the other. You're going to be God's friend or you're going to be the world's friend. You can't be friends with both. You can say you are. Oh, I love the world. And, and I love God too. People say that all the time. But he says you can't. And that's what John is saying. That's basic Christianity. We reject the world and its ways. Worldliness corrupts everything that is good and right and true. And we can't be a part of it. In fact, James also said in James 1.27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Oh, why did they add that? <laughs> Why did he put that last part? I mean, visit widows and orphans in their distress. That's such a sweet thing. That's such a nice, feels good, you know. Why did he add to keep oneself unstained by the world? He's spoiling the good vibes of that first part, you know. There's one eternal God. He's the maker of all things. He owns everything. And as we saw in 1 John chapter 1, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Verse 5 of chapter 1. God is good. He's all good. He's good right through and the world isn't good. In fact, the world is quite the opposite. So, you know, I, I'm not quite sure how people actually think, uh, but the world isn't just something that happened and here we are. We're eking out a life and then there's this sort of God person who tells us to be good to each other and some people are good and some people aren't good and it's all going to come out somehow and then we're going to die. That's your average person. That's how they think about the world pretty much. I just sort of exist, I try to be nice and then I die. That is actually not the purpose of the world or your life. The hard truth of the world, and it is the truth, that our existence and the purpose of our existence is a battle that is being played out between good and evil. More specifically between persons, God who is a person who is light and in whom there's no darkness at all and the evil one, a fallen angel named Lucifer or Satan. It's not good and evil as abstract sort of ideas. There's a personal rebellion going on against God who is a person and that rebellion is being led by a person. God made us in his image so we are persons 
And we have a job to manage this planet in the name of God for his glory. That's what Adam's job was. That was the first purpose for human beings. It's still our purpose. So the history of our planet began as a very good world corrupted by the fall of man and then cursed by God because of human wickedness. So this world, this planet we live on is actually the center of the rebellion of the universe. This is the heart of it all. It's all happening down here. This is where the great contest is being played out. So man left God, walked his own way, and that brought about unimaginable levels of evil into the world. And God cursed the earth so that man would turn back to him. And God has this great plan. He's reclaiming ground. His history is sort of working out this great moral lesson from the very beginning of what happened all the way until our time and into the future. This great lesson is, is happening. And the lesson is this. What happens when you abandon the creator and go your own way? and declare the world is yours and make your own world. What actually does happen? A disaster, a moral disaster, that's what happens. I was chatting with an atheist recently and um, online, and I don't do that very often, but sometimes I do. And he brought up the problem of evil. How could a benevolent God allow so much suffering in the world? It's the classic atheism 101 question, you know, it's, it's the standard question, everybody. It's a fair question, and I love answering it, but I don't dance around it. Unbelievers actually need to hear the truth. And God is benevolent, but that doesn't even begin to comprehend who God is. God is much more than benevolent. So, you know, in the logical syllogisms, you've got this premise. Well, if God is benevolent and there's all this suffering in the world, then there must not be a God, right? Or he must be evil or something like that. Th that first premise, God is benevolent, that's not, that's not it. That's not what the thing's all about. Angels don't fly around God in heaven like in Isaiah 6 and say, benevolent, benevolent, benevolent. The whole earth is full of his niceness. Benevolent is the Lord of hosts. Actually what they sing is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. That's what they sing. God is holy. He, he, he is benevolent, but that's just one little part of who he is. So I, I wrote this to this guy. I said, human beings are fundamentally evil. As history, all great literature, and a quick look at your own heart will attest. God is the judge of the world he created. God is holy. God cursed the creation. Suffering is both a just punishment for human sin and a wake-up call to humanity that the world is not what it ought to be because man is not what he ought to be. And then I asked him a question, why would a loving God leave sinful men in paradise? See, that's the Christian view of the world. We don't have to pretend, like, oh, how am I going to defend God's goodness? You don't have to defend God's goodness. A good God punishes evil. That's what's happening to our world. Big picture, the earth is at the center of a cosmic rebellion and human beings are in rebellion against God. So God is doing a work of reclamation. 
that's going to bring him glory and bless many, many people. He is reclaiming the earth in part through his benevolent mercy as he saves people like you and me and gives them a new heart. That's why Jesus came to save us. His great love which we see in Christ literally bearing the sin of the world and himself. But it's also seen in God's promise to send Christ in great power to crush the rebellion of the world and to reign in righteousness. And that's coming. So after all the lessons have been learned to God's satisfaction, the rebellion will be crushed. So this idea of worldliness in, is man's rebellion that's manifested in human desires and attitudes and actions that creates cultures that celebrate wicked things. And as people redeemed from rebellion, that's us, Christians shouldn't have any part of it, of those wicked things that the world does and the wicked things cultures do. No part of it. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So worldliness is whatever is contrary to our Father in heaven and what he's revealed about himself. Whatever is not from him, we reject outright. No matter what the cost. But too often we don't. We don't do that. There are powerful things against us. Matthew Henry says this, the world draws down the heart from God. And the more the love of the world prevails, the more the love of God decays. That's exactly right. The world is trying to pull you down from loving him. And if you love the world, your love for God is going to decay. It's really that simple. So now in John, in verse 16 here, John gives us a really helpful summary of what he's talking about. We expect John to be simple and use simple words and brief language and that's exactly what we get here. Paul will give you a long list of the sins of the flesh. In fact, in Galatians 5, I think there's 15 words describing the sins of the flesh. And then he says, and things like these. Like he's got all kinds of stuff in mind. John boils it down to three simple things that kind of covers it all. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Those are the things common to man that pull him away from God. And believers have to be very careful about not letting those things encroach upon our lives. And we do that by really faithfully maintaining the great commandments to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's, really that's really where the battle is. So we can measure how we're doing by being self-aware, by making sure these three things have not taken hold in our life. Let's look at them. The first one is the lust of the flesh. So the lust of the flesh are things that arise from within us. The corruption and the perversion of God-given desires that happened in the fall. The common lot of fallen humanity. God gave us all these wonderful qualities. But we have these dark things in us that come up out of us. We have many desires that are part of our humanity that are designed to help us thrive but sin perverts those things and corrupts those things and they become stumbling blocks to sub serving God and to loving God so we have to look at that and say wow so you know how this feels have you ever come on you have an opportunity to do something good right and true and part of you says I don't wanna 
I don't want to do that today. That's the flesh. That's a really simple example of the flesh. I don't want to do that good thing. So when we use words like lust of the flesh, often we think of sexuality, but it's much, much more than that. Now that is certainly a part of it. I mean, the Bible has very rigorous standards regarding sexual behavior and stands firmly against lust or anything that incites to lust. Job laid the foundation for that in that incredible chapter in Job 31, the ancient morality. The very first line, he's going to discuss this incredible moral life he lives. And the very first line is, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How can I gaze at a maiden? Right? And then Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he was pretty clear about that as well. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. Most Americans hate that verse. <laughs> Job, Job actually took a stand against lust, his own lust. He wasn't preaching about lust. He was saying, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How could I gaze at a woman? He didn't pretend to be above it all. He said, I know I have this in me. See, that's the lust of the flesh. It's coming from within. Our whole culture, our whole culture is designed to rebel against God's purpose for human sexuality. Our entire culture is devoted to that. The promotion of lust and the hearty approval of what the Bible calls porneia, sexual immorality, is absolutely everywhere. Hollywood loves it. The music industry celebrates it constantly, endlessly, over and over and over. And we give them money. We give them money so they can sell it to our children. So they'll be trapped and they'll become lifelong customers as well. You know, once your taste is jaded, it's actually kind of hard to enjoy innocent and pure things because there's a bite in sin that that internal corruption. So when we constantly feed ourselves on that, good things seem dull. Good things aren't dull. Good things are wonderful. But it seems that way because the bite of sin is deep inside of us. Does God hate sexuality? No, he invented it. <laughs> he invented it to be enjoyed. He created it to be marital glue. So two people can share something that they don't share with anybody else. It's just special between them and that helps bond them together. Read Proverbs chapter 5 and the Song of Solomon. God loves sexuality but not the perversion of it. And all the ruin that abusing, abusing that, that gift causes to humanity, he hates that. So that's one area. Let me take a more innocent example. Rest and recreation. Is that good? Yeah, it's good. It's good for you mentally. It's good for you physically. Even Jesus took the disciples kind of away for little vacations, you know, go off somewhere and just kind of be away from the crowds. They have to recharge, you know, we always use that kind of language. The state of sheer exhaustion is not good for godliness in a fallen world. Though at times it's necessary in extreme situations where you're going to have to be exhausted for, 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 to help people. Wars and disasters are good examples of that. You're just not going to be okay. It's not going to be a comfortable thing. Rest is good though, and R&R, that's good. That's a balanced life. But when somebody says R&R is so good, I don't need to pray, I don't need to attend worship, I don't need to serve other people, I don't need to earn my own bread. That's an unbalanced and sinful life, right? The Bible has a word for that, the sluggard. 
No motivation. The corruption of the flesh can lead to all sorts of patterns or habits or routines, even addictions and compulsions coming to rule over us. It's coming from within. So those things rule over us instead of wisdom and prudence and compassion and honor and simple devotion and obedience to God. It gets in the way of all those things. The lust of the flesh can control our whole life. That's loving the world. And that's following the broken pattern that Adam gave us. The second one here is the lust of the eyes. And that's probably best thought of with the word covetousness. So this is dealing with things that are outside of us, that are peaking things within us, getting the interest of things within us, that nature within us. But it's not just growing out of us, it's something we see. The lust of the eyes encompasses all kinds of temptations and evil desires that come from what we see. There's things, all these things are outside of us. They might not even be known to us until we see them. And then when we see them, they awaken our sinful desires. Now, of course, that can be sexual as well. Coveting a person that you're not allowed to have or you are in situations or see images where a degraded person is actually used as an object to appeal to those things within you. That's something outside that the lust of the eyes takes and it inflames something from the dark nature that's within us. The whole idea of covetousness is built around the lust of the eyes. That's what the 10th commandment is all about. You know there's 10 commandments? You ever read the last one? You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, or his ox, or his donkey. I just love my neighbor's donkey. That is, <laughs> wow, if I had that donkey, I could pull my cart around all day. <laughs> or anything that belongs to your neighbor, he adds. He's got the coolest Nintendo set. I hate him. <laughs> These are all things which, if we had not seen them, we might not have even ever thought about them. But then we see them, and we feel deprived and unhappy because we don't have them. We might even resent the person that has them because we should have one too. That's evil. That's evil. Remember Jesus told a man in Luke 12, 15, Beware and be on, be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist in his possessions. So contentment is actually the answer to covetousness. Number three, this is what John calls the boastful pride of life. Now some translations have changed that in recent years. Um, one says pride in his possessions or the NIV says boasting in what he has or does. The Greek word actually is life though and I think that should be kept if we can. The boastful pride of life because that includes more than just possessions and the things we do and things like that. It includes all the different kinds of ways that people boast and have pride. People boast in a lot of different things. Sometimes it's their possessions, sometimes it's their portfolio, things like that. It could be their fame or their celebrity. I was stunned years ago when I learned that celebrities actually count how many magazine covers they're on in a given month and they freak out if somebody's got more than them. You know, they yell at their agent or what. I mean, like it, it just matters so much how many magazine covers I'm on. That they actually get their self-worth from that, you know? People can boast of their looks, they can boast of their success in using other people, all kinds of things. Social media has created a whole new realm of the boastful pride of life. 
People looking for those dopamine hits, you know. How many likes did I get? How many shares? How many clicks? How many retweets? Uh, some kind of recognition, you know. It becomes an obsession for people, the boastful pride of life. Some people, to keep a following, just get weirder and weirder to get attention, you know. That's where furries come from. <laughs> Which furry abortionist? That's where they come from. <laughs> That's not the way human beings should, should think. It's not the way they should feel. That's not where happiness is found. And they feel utterly worthless if they don't have thousands of people following them. I mean, that actually, they feel worthless. And if other people have tens of thousands of people following them, they resent it. It's not the way humans should be. This internal desire to boast of more friends or more followers or whatever. It's a deadly thing. And look at our Christian world. Celebrity, pastors, gigantic churches. There's so much corruption in that world and more and more of it comes out every week. The immorality, the abusing of people, the taking advantage of poor people. The, it's, just, it's just awful. No discernment, no wisdom, no maturity. Just the big show and the numbers and the cult of personality. One church, I think I've mentioned this before, even has a coloring book of their pastor. It's like pictures of their pastor and the kids can color it in. He's our leader. See, I remember when Sunday school was telling people to follow Jesus. That's actually like kind of what you think it's supposed to be, but there's actually a church that has a coloring book so you can follow the pastor. Americans worship success too much, too much. And they measure success by the wrong things. What did, what did John say here? Do not love the world. Do not love the world. Don't think like the world. In fact, the same guy with the coloring book uh, preaches that, he says, God told Moses that God's name is I am so that we can say I am too. Now that's not only like wrong, it's actually blasphemous. But this guy has a church of tens of thousands of people. I mean, a huge, giant church. You can't get more boastful than that to claim that you were the I am. So, just kind of bringing this to an end here. The, the world is insane. I don't know if you've noticed. <laughs> and now that we've cut loose from Christianity completely as a culture, it's just going to get more and more insane. If we love God, we're supposed to be completely different from all of that. You actually don't need the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the boastful pride of life to feel good and happy in life. You don't need it, any of it. God is good. He loves us. That is more than anything this world has to offer. The world offers cheap substitutes for, for joy, for real joy. And it always leaves us empty when we go down that path. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. Rest in Christ. Love Christ. Serve your fellow man with peace in your heart that comes from Christ. And that can be difficult because it's a fallen world. But that's where we're supposed to be. You of all creatures on the planet should see through vain, empty, worldly pleasures and thinking. John's final reminder here is the, that the things of the world the way the world lives, it's not going to remain. Verse 17, the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. 
So it's, that's a fitting conclusion to this discussion here. The world will not last. Something good and glorious is coming. And we represent it. We represent that good thing that's coming. We're ambassadors of a coming kingdom. That's our job. It's a righteous kingdom. And we're citizens of that kingdom. And we need to live like citizens of that kingdom that's coming. So the world can see it. John Newton, the guy that wrote Amazing Grace, who was a slaver. He was actually a slave himself at one point, but he was a slave trader and a ship's captain, and then he became a Christian, gave his life to fighting those things. He wrote another song other than Amazing Grace. He actually wrote several, but um, I want to read you this one because most people don't know about it anymore. It says, Let worldly minds the world pursue it has no charms for me. Once I admired its trifles too, but grace has set me free. As by the light of opening day, the stars are all concealed, so earthly pleasures fade away when Jesus is revealed. Creatures, no more divide my choice. I bid them all depart. His name and love and gracious voice has fixed my roving heart. Now, Lord, I would be thine alone and wholly live to thee. But may I hope that thou wilt own a worthless worm like me? Yes, though of sinners I'm the worst. I cannot doubt thy will. If thou hadst not loved me first, I thee had hated still. But God does love us, and that's why we can love him. Let's pray. Father, you have loved us first, and now we see. The world gets worse every single day. They, they'll go on and on until you bring down the curtain on this sin-soaked world of men that men have designed after their own lusts, but we look forward to your kingdom of righteousness. That's the world we belong to. You've called us to holy pursuits, so help us delight in all that is true and honorable and good. And keep us aware of all that displeases you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.